Great to see everybody this morning. We had an incredible week. If you weren't here with us on Wednesday night, you need to know it was just a, such an exciting time. And Pastor Brian, he shared some of the, just the numbers and the stories, and you could see the faces in the video. But just to kind of rehearse it a little bit, over 1,300 people, we think, just showed up on our campus. And if nothing else, they just got to know that, hey, there's a church in the community who loves them, who cares for them, who's committed to uh, just partnering with them and seeing their children grow up to love the Lord. And um, beyond that, you know, we, we passed out, we think, over 30,000 pieces of candy, <laughs> over 1,200 bags of popcorn, and maybe, maybe one of the greatest numbers is about the over 500 kids who, and, uh, and parents who came in and got to see uh, Pastor Donnie put on just an incredible magic show, and then how he used the show to clearly and relevantly and just in a captivating way share the good news of Jesus Christ. It was really well done. It was an exciting, uh, an, an exciting evening, and if you missed it, um, you know, Donnie, he, he did some tricks that I'm telling you, because I got to kind of go and close everything out, and then the kids all funneled by me, and I had kids coming up to me, like, after every show, how did he do that? You know, how did that happen? And, you know, maybe you were one of those, right? And some adults, too, because I'm sitting there, I don't know how he's doing this stuff. You know, it's crazy. He's, he's making things appear that shouldn't appear. You know, things, he, things just don't leave the way he left them. I mean, he had this rope, and he's cutting the rope, and he's cutting it in half, but it doesn't stay in half. It keeps going back together. He has a hat, and balls just keep appearing out of the hat. It's like, how, how is this happening? He had a, he had a jack-o'-lantern thing, and, this, and he showed it to us, and it was, like, empty. There's a hole on either side, and then a, a yellow s- cylinder deal that's holes on either side, and he's just pulling out. Thing after thing, after he showed us, it was empty. And, and then he had this stuffed bunny, Mr. Snuffle, what was it called? Stuff and Fluff, Mr. Stuff and Fluff. And he, and he takes Mr. Stuff and Fluff, this stuffed bunny, and we saw this one, right? He, just, he throws it over the, over the curtains, and we kind of caught that. And then in its place, he made a real live bunny just kind of appear. And we're like, how did he do that? So stuff's appearing when it shouldn't appear, and stuff is changing. It just doesn't leave it the way he left them. And you know what? Jesus is that way too. He doesn't just stay where we put him. I want you to see what I mean. Turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9 Verses 1 through 19. We're finishing up our series titled Blueprints of a Healthy Church. It's part one, really, of the book of Acts. And after the new year, we'll launch into part two of the book of Acts, titled in a series titled Made to Move. Uh, but so far, we've seen God, how He's designed His church how he's created these blueprints for a healthy church to operate. And, and we've seen that, that, that God has given his church a clarity of mission, that, that he's given them this missionary mentality that they know that they're supposed to go and make disciples of all peoples, beginning in Jerusalem and then all of Judea and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and we've seen that, and he's equipped his church with this vibrant leadership who, who leads them uh, toward expectant worship and, and, and to growing in their faith. 
And all this is within a context of just prayerful dependence upon God and relational intentionality with one another. And with these characteristics, the church is just transforming the culture. Beginning in Jerusalem, many are being saved, the church is multiplying, and and opposition arises, and the church is forced to go beyond Jerusalem because of opposition, and it goes into all of Judea and into Samaria. And it's unbelievable that this gospel would go to these places, that this church, as persecuted as it was, as people are being dragged out of their homes and and they're forced to leave, that they're taking the gospel and the first things on their lips is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we've seen some unbelievable things happen. And this morning, we're going to see something truly unbelievable when we see who's going to get saved this morning, even more uh, unbelievable than some of Donnie's illusions. So let's look at it. Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so, he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now we met Saul a couple weeks ago. And you remember, he was, he was there as Stephen was being stoned, as he was being murdered. Saul, Saul was the one holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen and giving approval and saying, yes, this is what we need to do. And, and he was the one who then goes into Jerusalem and he 
pulls people from their homes and he imprisons them. Saul is the one who is persecuting the Christians. He's at the head of it. He wants them gone. He, he, we, you know, we would have expected to meet Saul again in Jerusalem, him continuing to kind of carry out his persecution of the Christians. <clears throat> but that's not where we find him. <clears throat> Saul is so consumed with hatred for the church, for the way, as it was called then. The church was first called the way. And so he was so consumed with these people this group that had been tormented and tortured and how they've continued to go and continued to share Jesus. And it just bothers him so much as the persecution increases, their, their faith and their ability to share the gospel seem to expand as well. And, and he just can't get over it. He is so frustrated. He's heard the testimony about Jesus rising from the dead and, and he thinks it's obnoxious. He thinks Jesus is just a fraud that, that he's a fake, and he, and he looks at all these people who, who have become part of the way, and he's saying, you guys are crazy. And so he kicks them out of Jerusalem, and they keep sharing the gospel, and Saul is just committed to seeing that this is exterminated, not just in Jerusalem, but all over. And so he goes to uh, the high priest, and he says, hey, can I go up to Damascus? And Damascus is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. I've heard there's some religious activity, some, some of these people in the way, and they're up there. Do you mind if I just, can you give me the papers so that I can go up there and I can bind them and I can drag them back to Jerusalem and imprison them here? And they say, okay, and, you know, and the Roman Empire is in, char in, char in charge at this time, and you know, they don't care. You know, they think this is just some kind of religious dispute. And hey, Saul, you just go and you just do what you need to do. As long as this doesn't affect our reign, our rules, the taxes that we're collecting, it's no big deal. They don't care. Go ahead, Saul, get whoever you need to get. And so he goes to Damascus. But there's something about a resurrected Jesus. There's something about Jesus that is dangerous. And Saul, he's well-trained. He knows the scriptures forwards and backwards, inside out. And he's convinced that he is right and the way is wrong. And he thinks that he has Jesus-proofed his life. You know what I mean? He thinks that there is no way that Jesus is getting into his life. In fact, he doesn't want to just Jesus-proof his life. He wants to Jesus-proof like all of society. And he's looking around, he says, I don't want Jesus in Jerusalem, we're kicking him out. And beyond just Jerusalem, hey, I don't want Jesus in Damascus. I don't want him in Samaria. I don't want him anywhere. I want Jesus just to stay in the tomb that he was buried in. We want a Jesus-proof society. And this is Saul. And the thing about Jesus is, he doesn't stay where you put him. He doesn't just stay in the tomb, stay in the grave. He doesn't just stay outside of Saul's 
world. And so as Saul is walking to Damascus, this 150-mile journey, you see how committed he is to ruining Christianity. Saul is overwhelmed. This bright light shines. He falls to the ground. He can't see. He's blind. He's disoriented. He can't make sense of what's happening. He's totally disoriented. He can't figure it out. And Jesus wants him to understand, hey, Saul, you've been blind the whole time. You've been blind the whole time. I'm just letting you experience the reality of what's been going on in your life because you've been blind all along. And Saul begins to talk. And you hear his first question. He asks, who are you, Lord? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, who are you, sir? Who are you, man? Saul realized that the only one who had the power to knock him down and shine this kind of a light, the only one who's going to get him on the floor like this had to be the Lord. And now he's got to know, okay, Lord, just who are you? I need to know who are you? And it's Jesus who responds. And Jesus says, I am the one you are persecuting. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. An interesting bit here of of the way that God has designed his church and the blueprints of a healthy church, a bit of theology about the church, is that to attack the church is to attack the body of Christ, which is to attack Jesus himself. That, That Jesus is saying, hey, when you stoned Stephen... When you ripped the, the, the Christians the way from their homes, you weren't just doing it to Stephen. You weren't just doing it to those individual believers. That when you attacked them, you were persecuting me. That when you speak evil of the church, when you complain about the church, when you grumble about the church, you're not just doing that to people. You're doing it to me. That God has so designed his church that, that you have these illustrations that the church is the bride of Christ, that the church is the body of Christ, that, that, that Jesus so aligns himself with the church that he says when you persecute the church, when you speak evil about the church, when you grumble about the church, when you think bad about the church, you don't just do this to this church. I am. You're, you're doing it to me. Jesus, God, the way he's designed the church. In Revelation, you you have this beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb where the church will be presented to Christ, dressed in fine linens. Jesus says that that it it will be uh, a symbol of purity and righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus himself died to give to the church so that we could be presented that way because in and of ourselves, we would never be able to be presented that way, as righteous, as pure, as totally totally cleansed, totally free, from sin. See, this is the righteousness that God gives the church. And Jesus, he he tells Saul something else. He says, hey, it's me you've been persecuted. Now get up and go to Damascus. And then you'll be told what to do. Did, Did you catch that? He says, get up and go, and then you'll be told what to do. He says, I'm not giving you step two until you complete step one. 
I'm not going to tell you what to do next until you do what I've already told you to do here. And sometimes in our own life, we can get frustrated with, with Jesus that way. He says, Jesus, just, just give me step two, step three, step four. I want to know all that first. You know, but Jesus said, no, I'm calling you to do step one. Right, right now, I'm just calling you to repent and believe. And we're saying, well, what's it going to look like, though? What's it going to cost me? What, what's going to happen when? Jesus says, no, I just want you to do step one. Sometimes, you know, hey, step one is just to go and to forgive somebody. And you say, well, hey, I know that, but, but what happens if they say this? What, what happens if the conversation goes like this? Jesus, I need to know before I just kind of step out on that limb. Sometimes you know that you need to go and you need to just ask for forgiveness from someone else, that you've wronged someone and you just need to go and you need to lay it out and say, hey, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? But we're thinking, no, God, you got to tell me what's going to happen next. <laughs> I mean, are they really going to? What if they don't? What happens then? God, come on, you, you got to tell me. You know, I think it might be easier just to kind of pretend like things never happened. Sometimes you know that step one is just to go to initiate a conversation with someone and share the gospel. But we get to kind of run it ahead and thinking, okay, well, yeah, what if I start the conversation? Then they start asking me questions, and I don't know how to answer those questions. What do I do then? See, oftentimes we can jump ahead to step two, step three, step four, when so often in the scripture, God gives us step one. And then he says, just trust me from there. I'm, I'm going to tell you what to do next, but right now, here's step one. Be faithful. Be obedient to step one. Saul gets up, and his friends he's, he's traveling with, they're, they're just they're dumbfounded, right? They can't say anything. Did you catch that? They're, they're totally speechless. And for three days, they lead blind Saul to Damascus. And meanwhile, God gives this vision to a godly man named Ananias. And Ananias, he gets this vision from God, and he can't believe what he sees. You know, Wednesday night, Pastor Donnie was doing a lot of tricks, and we couldn't believe what he was seeing, what we were seeing. Anyway, you know, this morning, he's got one more trick for us, okay? And I don't know if we're going to believe it again. So, Pastor Donnie, why don't you come on up and, and give us this one last uh, trick? And I hear it's a good one. Wow. How did he do that? Uh, that was incredible. It was amazing. And so, you know, I think I know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't know how. I don't know how he did that. I know um, we probably don't think that he just somehow suspended the laws of nature there for a moment, but, we, but something happened, right? Well, sometimes in life, we don't know what to do, what to think, what to make of things. Um, we, we just know that something happened. And Kind of jumping back into the story here with Ananias and uh, Saul and everything. Um, sometimes we think that if we can get a vision from God, that if we think that, you know, life just, we haven't heard step two, step three, step four. And if we just had that vision, if God just kind of gave us a sheet of paper and said, hey, do this first, then, then do this, then do this, then do this, 
that everything would just make sense, that everything would be all right? Evidently not. Because Ananias, he gets a vision from God. He hears from God. And Ananias, he's a faithful man. He, he's a man who loves God, and God comes to see him, and, and he gives him this, this vision about Saul of Tarsus being converted. And, and he says, hey, you need, you need to go to this house. He's going to be on Straight Street. You go over there, and you're going to meet him, and here's what you need to do. And the exchange is a little bit hilarious because Saul then says, hey, Lord, you know, I've heard a lot about this guy. You know, are, are you sure you've got the right guy? Do you know who he is? As if God is just going to say, uh, hey, you're right, Ananias, I kind of messed up here. I got the wrong guy. Um, I'll get back to you on who I want you to meet. Ananias has this vision. He hears from God, but he doesn't believe that God can change a life like Saul's. And you know what? I'm not so sure that you and I would have believed it either. Because even today, we, we read the stories, we watch the news sometimes, and, and you see these stories every once in a while of somebody getting arrested, and, and, and you hear all the terrible things they've done, and then they claim that they've met Jesus, and that now they have this relationship with Jesus, that they've been converted, and we can be skeptical, and we can look at it and say, ah, I think it's some kind of a ploy. This seems like some kind of a con job. What, 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 what are they getting at here? They're just trying to win us over or something, trying to make us feel you know, bad for them or, or gin up some support for them. And you know, sometimes it goes even beyond that. Sometimes you know people in your life and you think, you know, look, I know how they live. I know how they think. I know, I, I know what their life is like. And it really looks to me as if they've Jesus-proofed their life. That, that, that there's no way that Jesus is going to get in and, and reach that person that really, they, they seem like a lost cause. And someone can come up to you and they say, hey, you know, we should pray for them. And you might think, man, I've tried praying for them for a long time. If you want to pray, go ahead and pray. I don't think it's going to do any good. And we can think like that sometimes. But Jesus, he just doesn't stay where you put him. He tends to appear in places and in people that we would have never guessed. The resurrected Jesus, he's not lost. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And, you know, and around this room, many of us were lost causes too at one point in time. But Jesus came and found us why we were lost. It's not that we found him. He, we, he wasn't the one who was lost. We were lost, and he came and found us. Lost causes just like Saul. And Ananias, he becomes convinced, and he goes and he meets Saul, and he baptizes Saul, and, and, and he hears that, that, hey, Saul is going to be the one who's been appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that he's going to suffer for the sake of Christ, and that he's not blind anymore, that now Saul, he's been baptized, he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He can see clearer now than he's ever seen before. And so Saul is saved, and he begins preaching the gospel gospel there first in the synagogues throughout Damascus. And the most incredible thing happens. The Jews in Jerusalem, they hear about it and they hatch a plan to kill Saul. These, just think about it, these were his best friends. These were the guys whose coats he held. 
These were the ones who they huddled together with and they schemed together and they devised their plans together. These were the guys that he joked with, who he hung out with. These were his best friends. And now they hear that Saul is preaching Jesus in Damascus and they devise a plan to go up to Damascus and kill him. Isn't it interesting Saul thought that Jesus would never be able to impact his life. Ananias hears about it, and Ananias thinks, hey, there's no way that Jesus is going to impact Saul's life. And then you have these unbelieving Jews down in Jerusalem, and they hear about it, and there's no doubt. They just think something needs to be done about Saul. The They're not asking themselves, hey, do you think the reports are mistaken? Do you think it's the same guy, the same Saul? they got to have the wrong guy. I mean, we know our buddy, right? He would never be the one preaching Jesus. No, they don't say that at all. They say, we got to go get him. Sometimes the world can realize the impact, the power of Jesus even more than we do. I remember... Being in college, uh, went to the University of Central Florida, and I studied radio and television communications there and uh, broadcasting and, and taking a class there, one, taking some kind of communications class. And at the end of the class, the professor asked me to pray. Now, now UCF is a big school. I mean, if you know, UCF is the largest student body in the state of Florida. It's a it's, it's a big school, somewhat of a party school, you know, definitely not a Christian campus, okay? It's the only time that I remember any professor asking any student to pray, but she was a believer, she knew I was, and so we had a party at the end of the class, she asked if I would pray, and I prayed, and, you know, I just ended my prayer, closed my prayer in Jesus' name. Not really thinking much about it, you know, because sometimes when you pray, it can almost become habit, right? That You just kind of open your prayers up, Heavenly Father, or, or whatever it is you do, and then you just pray, and then you kind of close your prayer out in Jesus' name or, or, or whatever. And so that's just kind of, in some ways, almost habit for me. And, you know, I had several unbelieving students in the class come up to me afterwards and say, well, that, that was really bold. I, I noticed that you prayed in Jesus' name. That there is something about the name of Jesus that even lost people recognize, and they say there's power there, there's some danger there. He doesn't just stay where you put him, that he invades lives, that even by the name of Jesus, people can be saved. I had a pastor friend of mine, and he was invited to speak at this interfaith event, okay, in the community out in Washington, and and, but he was asked, though, hey, if you'll come and speak and just fit, say a few words for our community, we really appreciate it. Just, hey, you just can't mention Jesus, okay? <laughs> and he did a little digging, and he was able to find out that the other faith leaders in the community, they weren't asked not to mention Muhammad. They weren't asked not to mention Buddha. It was just the Christian leaders. Hey, just don't, sit, just don't bring up Jesus. We'd really appreciate that if you just didn't mention his name, just leave him out of it. Obviously, uh, my friend, he didn't go. He declined the invitation. I'm not sure he gets asked for those anymore. But um, there is something about the name of Jesus that even the world recognizes and the world says, hey, there's power there that you can't find in any other name because it's only under the name of Jesus by which people are saved. 
And so the unbelieving Jews, even they believe that Saul is preaching Jesus. Even they believe that Jesus had the power to somehow reach Saul and turn this persecutor of the church into a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And so they are out to get him. And some of the church in, in Damascus, they, they find out about the plan. They, they hear what's happening, and they lead this uh, elaborate kind of escape. It's exciting to read. If you have time, just to read all of chapter 9 today. But, but they lead Saul through this opening in the wall, and, and then they lower him down in a basket and, so that he can escape. And when he flees, he returns to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem, to the church that remained there, and he shows up in the church. They're just like the unbelieving Jews, right? They just say, hey, yes, yeah, Saul, you believe. This is awesome. No, <laughs> the church is afraid. I mean, they're fearing for their lives, and they're thinking that he's some kind of imposter, that he's just kind of masquerading around so that he can infiltrate the church and capture them and bind them up. and throw them. They know who Saul is and what he's done, and they're afraid. They think he's there to get him. They don't believe him. How is it that sometimes the unbelieving world can believe that God has the power to change a life before even the believing world can believe that God can reach in and change a life. How does that happen? How is it that sometimes people in the church can believe that people are lost causes, whereas the world looks and says, they're different. There's power. Jesus, God, has touched them. One of the reasons why I think it happens is because Sometimes we haven't let Jesus impact our lives the way that we ought. That, that, that sometimes we, we believe that God has died for us, that he has saved us, that he has paid the penalty for our sin, that we've been forgiven. We, we can believe that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we too can put these areas in our life and we can say, Jesus, don't go messing around here. You know, this is what I like to do in my free time. You know, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll you know, pray before meals. But, but geez, don't go trying to interrupt all this other stuff I got going. I still want to just live my life, you know. Don't make me go and start, like, sharing the gospel with people, maybe people I don't even know. That sounds really intimidating. Don't tell me that I can't just gossip to my friends about what's happening. You know, I like to talk. Sometimes we haven't been changed the way God desires to change our life. And so we really wonder, if he hasn't done more with me, how in the world could he ever reach that person? And if you're leading that kind of life, you know, you, you might just conclude, I, I'm not sure that Jesus has the power to. How much? Could he reach them? You know, sometimes when we come to know Jesus, he doesn't just march in and take everything away. Sometimes he allows us to suffer the consequences of our sin. 
So he, he doesn't just remove, I mean, he removes it all in the sense that it is paid for fully, completely, totally forgiven, clean. His righteousness is given to you. You are seen as righteous before God. But, it, but here's the thing, sin still separates. And so he allows us sometimes to suffer the consequences of separation that we've created in our lives based on our sin. You read through the book of Galatians, and these are people. Paul refers to them as brothers, 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 over and over and over again. These are people who have been saved, but what have they done? They've kind of just backpedaled in their faith. And they've gone back to their old traditions, and Paul's pleading with them, come on, I, God hasn't saved you for this life. He wants so much more for you than this. It's not that you're not saved. <laughs> it's that you're not enjoying the fruit of being saved. You're not enjoying the relationship with Jesus as you ought. There is a faithful man in the church. His name is Barnabas. We've met Barnabas before. We know that Barnabas isn't even his real name, right? His name is Joseph. He's a, he's a Levite. Barnabas is just a nickname that the church has given to him because he's such an encourager. And so they give him this name, Barnabas, and he's there and he believes Saul. He hears Saul's testimony and he believes him. And so Barnabas escorts Saul to the apostles. And he vouches for Saul and he puts his name on Saul. And then the leadership of the church, based on Barnabas' like, recommendation and stamp of approval, the leadership of the church embraced Saul. And they begin to let Saul preach in Jerusalem. But it's not safe there, so they sent him down to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus to protect him for a time. And Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, the threats for the church are still real. The Jews are still persecuting the church. They're still enraged. But there's peace in the church. The church is strengthened. The church, it isn't just growing. You see, it's multiplying. Growth takes place when one person in the church goes to someone else and, and shares with them the good news of Jesus. Multiplication takes place when the whole church goes and begins to share with other people the good news of Jesus. And this is what's happening. That the, the church hears the testimony of Saul and how he's been commended to them and then how he's preaching in the synagogues and they're seeing it firsthand. Man, this is the power of the God that we serve, that he can save people like that? I mean, he's as evil as it gets and now look at him. This is a changed life. And they go out and they begin sharing the gospel even more. We've, we've seen how the church continues to multiply. And they're, they're just renewed all over again. Look at what our God is doing. And they can't be stopped. And the church continues to multiply. It continues to strengthen. This is the power of our God. This is what our God can do. See, a healthy church never underestimates the reach of God's grace. A healthy church never underestimates the reach of God's grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been kind of living a life like Saul. And you're thinking, oh, Pastor Steve, if you ever knew all the things that I've done in my life, 
if, if you knew what I've done, I mean, I, I'm ashamed. I don't even want to think about what I've done. Maybe you've ended up in places you never thought you'd ended up. You've hurt people you never intended to hurt. You've said things you wish you'd never said. And you look at your life now and you think, man, I'm, I'm a lost cause. <laughs> what would God ever want to do with me? How could the light of God's gospel ever impact my darkness? Listen, I wasn't here. I'm not here. I wasn't called to find out all the things you've ever done. I don't need to know all of the details of every mistake you've ever made. That's not why I'm here. I'm here so that you can know that nothing you have ever done can drown out what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus has died for you on the cross and he has risen for you, for your sin, right in your darkness when you were doing those things you wish you'd never done, when you were saying those things you wish you'd never said, when you were hurting people you wish you'd never hurt. God is right there. It was in that moment that he looked at you and he said, I will die for you. I will give my son for you. I will send Jesus for you. You are never beyond the reach of God's unbelievable grace. As Stephen was being stoned, he prayed. One of those he was praying for was Saul. You you may remember it. Stephen, he's he's being stoned to death after he's given this incredible uh, witness about God, about Jesus, and then he prays as he's being stoned, God, will you not hold their sin against them? He was praying. One of those he was praying for was Saul. This morning, if you're, if you're with us this morning, I want you to know the, the pastoral leadership team, the leadership team of Central, we've been praying for you. Maybe not by name, but we've been praying for you that you would know the reach of God's unbelievable grace, of his unbelievable love, that while we were sinners, while we were at our very worst, Jesus died for us. Saul could never get over that fact. it, It just totally, radically changed his life. He would point back to it over and over again, this experience that he had on this Damascus road, that Jesus would show up in his life. And so in, in later on in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, he just continues to bring people back to this testimony. No, Jesus showed up in my life. Here's what he did. He knocked me down. He got my attention. We all remember, if you've been saved, what it was like when Jesus got your attention, when you were drawn into that relationship, when you were lost and he found you. See, he's the God who's on the move. He just doesn't stay where you put him. And we praise God for that. Because some of us, we put him in boxes and we try to Jesus-proof our life, but it doesn't work. It's kind of like those toddler-proof things. You know, you can try to toddler-proof your home and it doesn't work. They still find a way just to rip the things off and get the stuff in the outlets or whatever. They find a way. Jesus, in his omnipotence, he always finds a way. He found a way when we, when we were uh, sinners, when we were spiritually dead, 
when we had nothing to offer God, when we were of no use to him, he found a way to cleanse us of our sin, to make us right, to give us his righteousness so that we could be fit for heaven. On Wednesday afternoon, I was, I was in here just looking forward to trunk or treat and talking with Pastor Donnie a little bit um, just about how the, how the finale was going to go and a little bit. And as he's prepping for the show, I happened to catch how he did one of his tricks. And, you know, we know they're all illusions, right? I mean, we know, hey, he's just doing these illusions. Once you figure out how it's done, it's actually not as exciting. I hate to, I'm, not, I'm not trying to spoil anything, Donnie, but... It, what is fun, though, is to hear the kids come up with their, like, ideas of how it was done. Like, I think he did this, this, and this. And you're like, well, yeah, it's not quite that complex, you know. But um, Donnie's going to bum rush me off the stage here in a minute. But you find out more about it, and it's not quite as impressive. The joy of knowing Jesus is the more you find out about him, the more amazing it is. That, that it never lessens. That you're just awed over and over and over again that, that the God of the universe, a God so big, would love insignificant me this much. And that he's done this and he's empowered me with his spirit and he's called me and invited me to live in the context of a church. And, and, and then he asks me to represent him, that I get to be his ambassador. This is mind-blowing. It, it never gets less amazing. It always gets more amazing. This is the grace. This is the goodness. This is the love of our God. Heavenly Father, we are awed by you. You are an awe-inspiring God. You who would love us when we were unworthy, undeserving of your love. God, forgive us when we doubt just how far your hand can reach just the lives that you are able to change. God, God, at one point, we were all lost causes. Spiritual, spiritual death is spiritual death, and there's always a miracle in being made alive. So God, use us this week to share your gospel, to watch you um, just impact more people, more lost causes like us, like Saul. God, help us to be faithful witnesses this week. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.